Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, Bill Press here. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. I want to be sure you know my new book is out. Uh, Not so subtle. The title, Trump Must Go. The top 100 reasons to dump Trump and one, maybe, to keep him. It's available anywhere books are sold. Um, Best place to get it is go to our website, billpressshow.com. Special discount there for ordering the book and a way that you can add your own reasons to dump Trump. Let's do it now. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The day has come, the time has come, says the judge sentencing Bill Cosby. Yes, Bill Cosby. The three to ten years in state prison, and he is there already. Spending his first night in the Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, prison at the new new facility they call the Phoenix. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It's a Wednesday, Wednesday, September 26. Hello, hello, hello. So good to see you. Thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Show as we run fast with all of you to try to keep up with the news of the day. It is breaking on many fronts. Still on the Kavanaugh front, of course, now with the Senate Judiciary Committee. Just to show you what a fair process they are determined to produce, uh, they have scheduled a vote on the Brett Kavanaugh nomination for this Friday. Yes, that's two days from now. Yes, that's the day after Christine Ford testifies, which shows you just how much attention they intend to pay to whatever she has to say. Uh, and Republicans have hired an outside a prosecutor from Arizona to question uh, Christine Ford and purportedly, I guess, Brett Kavanaugh as well. Uh, on the other front, um, Bill Cosby, again, sentenced to prison, started serving his term immediately. And Donald Trump at the New York, everybody's laughing, not with him, They're laughing at him, and they are laughing at us because we elected this clown. All of that coming up. You tell us what you think about it all. Weigh in with your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. America runs on Dunkin'. That is the slogan from Dunkin' Donuts. They just dropped the donuts off of the slogan. Well, it turns out they're going to drop donuts off of the name altogether. Starting in January, Dunkin' Donuts will be no more. They will just be Dunkin'. Dunkin'. They pointed out that 60% of their sales go to beverages, specifically and mostly coffee. coffee. Uh, They have smoothies and other drinks like that, but they said it's really not donuts that are making up 
the uh, largest portion of their sales. So they're just going to drop Dunkin' Donuts altogether. They're just going to become Dunkin'. This reminds me of that IHOP thing yeah. not so long ago. <laughs> IHOP. <laughs> yeah, right? Which right. was a big... I So I, I think this is a little fishy. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see. I mean, it... I wouldn't be surprised if they're just doing this to get a little publicity. Then they're going to say, ha-ha, fooled you, didn't it. we? Yeah. yeah right. right. Uh, let me ask you this. You fly a lot. Yeah. Uh, how would you feel <laughs> if someone next to you was using a virtual reality headset? One of those things you strap on your face and you can look at virtual reality through it. I don't care as long as I don't have to look at it. Well, Alaska Airlines is the, going to be the first airline to test virtual reality headsets this week on flights between Boston and Seattle and Boston and San I mean, Diego. they're going to give them away? They're expensive. They're, well, they're not going to They're going to let people use them oh, on the right. flight, uh, but it's only for first-class passengers on a couple of different flights. Uh, and again, it's going to be uh, it's, it's taking place right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, so they're testing it out with a, a company that does these VR sets to see if people like them, if people want to use them. You can watch movies on them. I know. Yeah, know. I have a friend who has one. Uh, they don't mean anything to me. No. I, I mean, to me, that's less intrusive than having a dog alongside of you. <laughs> or, right? Or, you know, talking on your cell phone, things oh, like no, that. No, no, which... no, never, never, never. Or just talking. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if they're looking at a movie on the thing, what's the difference? I mean, I unless they're screaming or, you know, whatever. You're so. not going to see me get on an airplane and strap one of those things to my oh, face. Well, first of all, I think they're... I'm just not going to do it. No. If y'all want to do it, y'all go right ahead. I'm not. I looked at one one. I couldn't see what it was all about. To me, it was nothing. It's silly. Yeah. This is the Bill Press Show. Yep, they're going to hear from her on Thursday. They're going to vote on him on Friday. So much for any pretense that there's going to be a fair process surrounding the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Hey, hello, everybody. Happy Wednesday. What do you say? Great to see you today. It is the Bill Press Show. We're glad to see you. Glad to welcome you to the program. Uh, I'm glad to have you part of the program as we reach out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day, uh, such as it is. And there is actually uh, a lot of news on a lot of different fronts, uh, not just the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, although that certainly heated up yesterday with Republicans hiring uh, an outside counsel, a prosecutor from Arizona, to question the witnesses uh, and the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who is determined, following the orders of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, to ram this nomination through, um, has the chairman has called, scheduled a vote on Brett Kavanaugh's nomination for Friday. Yes, indeed, just the very day after Christine Ford, Dr. Christine Ford, testifies. And, of course, they're not going to even let the second accuser, Deborah Ramirez, have her day in in the in front of the committee, uh, they won't even uh, give her a chance to testify. So you got all of that to talk about. We'll catch you up to date on that. Uh, and then uh, the beginning of where it all started, maybe the Me Too movement. Bill Cosby, Bill Cosby, 
Uh, time finally ran out for him yesterday, and the judge said, well, time is up. This is the time. We've got to make a decision. You're going uh, to march up to Montgomery County, Pennsylvania prison for three to ten years. Slapped the handcuffs. Took his tie off. Took his jacket off. Uh, slapped the handcuffs on him and marched him out of the courtroom yesterday. Pretty dramatic moment. Uh, and, of course, we've been laughing at Donald Trump, but now the entire world is laughing at us and at him because we elected him, um, and uh, that happened yesterday, of course, at the U.N. All of that coming up as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Join you again on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and on the great WCPT out, out in Chicago in the entire Chicago area, uh, and, of course, on Free Speech TV as well. We have a great lineup of guests today. We're going to get into an issue that um, I'm curious about, don't know anything about. It's called cabotage. has to do with maritime law. Uh, and the head of the American Maritime Partnership is going to tell us why this is important and something we all should care about. Um, and then from the Center for American Progress, Jocelyn Fry, senior fellow, uh, who is uh, her uh, area of expertise is the whole Me Too movement, will be joining us to talk about the ramifications, the national ramifications of the Mark Kavanaugh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, sor sorry, uh, nomination and where we go from here. And then Congressman Mark Pocan, great progressive, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus from the state of Wisconsin, will be along as well. But as I always tell you, you are the most important guest of all, and that's why we want to hear from you and your comments on Twitter about the news of the day, your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Yes, indeed, it was, pardon me, stunning. After all this time, and I lost count of the number of women. Um, it was, Peter, what, some 60 women, maybe that many? Uh, yeah, I, I remember at one point it was up in the 50s, and I know that more yeah. people were coming out. So, I mean, it, it just countless numbers. Women, of women who came forward so clearly, clearly. This was a pattern of Bill Cosby inviting these young women to his home outside of Philadelphia, drugging them and then sexually assaulting them. And there were so many, and the testimony was uh, so stark. And all of the time had run out on a lot of them in terms of the statute of limitations. But this was one woman, Andrea Kostand, uh, got in under the clock, if you will, uh, determined to carry that case all the way to its conclusion, which she did. And the judge, after you know, retrial and, and all kinds of delays, the judge just laid it out yesterday saying, the day has come, the time has come, now's the time to bring an end to this, no more delays, no more appeals, and sentence Cosby to three to ten years in prison. Uh, he is 80, 81, just looking very quickly here. Um early 80s, I know. Sure. Yeah, at any rate. Um, but, you know, so three to 10 years means he could very well die uh, in, in prison. Um, and I don't know whether the three to 10 years means they're going to decide exactly how long or whether it's got to be somewhere in between and he might even be released after three years for good behavior. It's sort of a little unclear. Yeah, I don't uh, totally But at any rate, it. Uh, it wasn't like you go home and pack your bags and then Report for uh, for duty like a week from now. Uh uh, they marched him right out, took him right to this new prison uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, which is uh, the 
Um, the Pennsylvania State Cor- Correctional Institute in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, three to ten years. Uh, that's that's how the me too, think about it. It's it, interesting that you know the the two events this week. That's how the Me Too movement really started with Bill Cosby, not with Harvey Weinstein. Bill Cosby has taken all this time, and then flash forward, and we're still in, still dealing with it. And we've seen we're still dealing with a lot of men in power who don't get it when you come to the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Uh, and on that front, yeah, after all the talk about, oh, how seriously we take the complaints or charges or allegations of misconduct raised by any women in these days in this era of Me Too, and all the Republicans giving lip service to that, and then they turn around and look at the way they have treated Dr. Christine Ford, first of all, calling her a liar, saying she was just a Democratic stooge, a Democratic puppet. She's doing this, as Donald Trump even said, all for political reasons. Um, they insisted, tried to force her to come last Monday to testify, wouldn't even give her the time to get across the country and prepare her testimony with her lawyers. They finally put it off till Thursday and then any pretense of a real fair hearing, of really being interested in hearing what she had to say and making their decision based on what she told them and the credibility of her accusations, all of that flew out the window yesterday when Chuck Grassley said, yeah, we're going to hear from her on Thursday. We're going to vote on Friday. Just get it over with. You know, I mean, it is such a farce. It is such a sham. It just shows that the whole thing is a stack deck. The whole thing is a joke. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they might as well vote today. They voted today. The vote will be the same, very same that it will be on Friday. Chuck Grassley himself has said, uh, "Brett, Ka- I've heard Brett Kavanaugh. I believe him. We know Orrin Hatch has said, oh, she's just mixed up. She's confused. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, I believe uh, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh before even hearing her. And Lindsey Graham famously said, right, I don't care what she says, um, I'm going to vote for him. And uh, I'm not, certainly not going to ruin his career because of anything she says, no matter what she says. So they've already, they've already made up their mind. This is a total, total sham. In terms yeah, this of is, Christine it, Ford, it's just meaningless. This is not and has never been a, a search to find out the truth. No. Ever. Ever. And, you know... They just want to ram this through. From the very beginning, before the allegations from Christine Ford uh, came to light, they were still trying to ram this through. If they had done their due diligence, they had done the like uh, you know an actual vetting process for Brett Kavanaugh, they wouldn't have this problem. Because, but they got so blinded by forcing him through and screwing up this process that it's turned into co- completely out of control. Right. And in terms of now a second accuser who has come forward, uh, they're not even going to hear from her, uh, uh, Deborah Ramirez. Um, yeah, there may be. She's not as doesn't seem to be as certain in her memory uh, as Christine Ford. But there's uh, her her, her a- a- account of what went on up at Yale when allegedly, according to her, Brett Kavanaugh, a drunk Brett Kavanaugh, by the way, who is described as a sloppy drunk by uh, several of his classmates at Yale today, said, come on, this idea that Brett Kavanaugh was some choir boy 
at Yale is is totally wrong that he was a, just a sloppy drunk known for getting drunk at every party. Uh, and and Brett Kavanaugh's roommate at the time says he does not remember this incident, but it certainly sounds like something that Brett Kavanaugh could have done. But so this Deborah Ramirez is a credible w- person with a story that should be heard. The Judiciary Committee is not even going to give her a chance to testify. They won't even return the calls of her attorney. There was a thread from her attorney uh, on Twitter last night. His name is John Clune. Right. Uh, And he tweeted out uh, last night, uh, we reached out to the Senate Judiciary Committee to schedule a call to discuss how how best to bring them information. And they refused to meet all scheduled appointments. We have officially requested an FBI investigation, and our client remains adamant that is uh, that is the appropriate venue for her to discuss her trauma. Ms. Ramirez is ready to swear to the FBI under penalty of perjury. Why won't the city Senate Judiciary Committee welcome that? Yeah. So if if there are if people say. She's not sure of her story, or there are some gaps in her story. If she's willing to testify under oath and under threat of perjury to the FBI about her story, that tells me that she's pretty confident. That tells me that she's telling the truth at any rate. Uh, And in this case, with Deborah Ramirez coming forward, unlike for a couple of days he kept quiet about Christine Ford, Donald Trump immediately yesterday attacked her, calling her a con artist, saying not even Democrats believe what she's saying. Yeah, yes. So this question about why more women don't come forward with their stories earlier or at all, take a look at what happened yesterday. The president of the United States personally attacked this woman because she dared tell her story about Brett Kavanaugh, the president of the United States. That's what you face. So if a woman faces, they come forward today with any any allegation about anybody, either Donald Trump himself, because, of course, that's the way he treated the women, uh, some 20 who've accused him of sexual assault, or anybody who uh, levels a charge against anybody close to him or around him or that he cares about. Uh, and Mitch McConnell, he's determined to ram this through for Donald Trump because he thinks it'll be good for Republicans. I think he is dead wrong. He complains. Mitch McConnell, of all people, right, again, who stole a Supreme Court vacancy from Barack Obama in an unprecedented uh, 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 case of obstruction, would not even hold a allow a hearing, let alone a vote, on Merrick Garland for over a year. He has the audacity to complain yesterday about what a chaotic process we've seen in the U.S. Senate. In the past week and a half, the American people have seen a confusing and chaotic process play out right here in the U.S. Senate. They've seen uncorroborated, decades-old allegations of wrongdoing pop up in the press at the last minute, the last minute, just as Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process was winding down. In other words, he's saying, yeah, we were just about ready to ram this through. We were just about there, right? We, we, were, we really snookered all of you guys, and then, damn it, damn it, at the last minute, you came up with something. Again, all they talk about is it happened so long ago, 
and this came forward at the last minute, rather than dealing with the substance of what Brett Kavanaugh allegedly did. Think of all the different ways that the Republicans have tried to defend Brett Kavanaugh over the past week and a half. Think of where we've come, right? Like, at first, they were actually being, you know, uh, fairly decent at first. Yeah, yeah. Right? Donald Trump included. And then it went to, oh, well, maybe it was somebody else. It was this whole doppelganger theory that's that they coordinated to put out there, which, by the way, it was absolutely coordinated. And then it turned into, oh, well, maybe she's remembering things wrong. And then it turned into, well, this was so long ago. We're now, we've just landed at, she's a liar. Yeah. That's their defense, is they're just calling this woman a liar. Which, again, is what Donald Trump has called every woman who's raised any accusation against him, uh, including Stormy Daniels. Uh, and uh, and all the rest. McConnell again going on, blaming it. This is so classic. Blaming it all on the Democrats. They just cooked this up. Number one, our Democratic colleagues on the Judiciary Committee get wind of, or maybe even go looking for, a sensitive allegation. Second, they decline to share it with the majority, meaning the committee cannot promptly take appropriate action. And third, they allow the allegation to leak to the press at the last moment. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so this is just the Democrats uh, playing games, again, rather than looking at the substance of what uh, Dr. Christine Ford uh, has to has to say. Uh, and then you go to Donald Trump yesterday. When the second accuser, Deborah Ramirez, comes forward, uh, Donald Trump, he's at the U.N., but he can't resist personally jumping into this. And again, how does he jump into it? Jumping into it by attacking the woman who raised the charges. I look at the second accuser. The second accuser has nothing. She has nothing, Donald Trump says. There are all kinds of gaps in what she talked about. She said, well, it might not be him. And there were gaps. And she said she was totally inebriated. And she was all messed up. And she doesn't know it was him, but it might have been him. Oh, gee, let's not make him a Supreme Court judge because of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh, God, the worst thing for the world, according to Donald Trump, would be if Brett Kavanaugh doesn't get on the Supreme Court. It would be a horrible insult horrible. to our so country horrible. if this oh, doesn't yeah. happen. Oh, right, and, really? And it'll be a horrible, horrible <laughs> thing for future political people, judges, anything you want. It'd be a horrible thing. It, it, cannot, it cannot be allowed to happen. He even said, pray for Brett Kavanaugh and his family. Are you kidding? <laughs> pray for the sexual predator? Yeah. I mean, it's like saying, pray for Donald Trump. Yeah. Because, God. Brett Kavanaugh is deeply disturbed, uh, uh, aside I, from the sexual predator stuff. He is deeply disturbed and is also a sexual predator. I'm not going to pray for him. No, no. This isn't this isn't a plan hatched by Republicans. Just look at him on paper. Hatched by Democrats, right. Yeah, yeah. hatched by Democrats, you should say. Just look at him on paper. He's Wait. a maniac. <laughs> but, you know, we and we uh, my column last week, I'm sure you saw it, we, we put it out. I mean, they're all even before this stuff came forward. There were all kinds of reasons why Brett Kavanaugh had proven that he was not worthy of being on the Supreme Court. Yes. He lied about Roe v. Wade. He lied about his role in dealing with torture documents. He lied about his role in reviewing people like Charles Pickering, who are uh, nominees uh, for, 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 for the court. 
you know, he lied about other documents and uh, that that had been st- uh, emails that had been stolen and that he was given to review when he was in the White House. He lied about all this of under oath in front of the committee, and yet they just brushed all of that aside. Yeah. And now they're brushing this aside as well. What is I mean, happening? Yeah. Uh, you know, you just got to hope. You just got to hope. And it's a very thin read of hope that in the end, Jeff Flake or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski will just say, look, this is too much. This is not worthy of the court. It's not worthy of the country. And it's not worthy of the Republican Party. And I'm not going to be part of this sham. I'm not going to be part of this charade, right, that this is good government or good governance. Um, But I got to tell you, leaning on those three is uh, or counting on those three is uh, uh, kind of a waste of time. Yeah, I'm afraid. I I agree with you. I think it's I'd like to think of the best of them, but. They've let us down too many times. It's a couple of a couple of things that, that stick out to me, right? I think that Republicans, Mitch McConnell in particular, by scheduling mm. this thing on Friday, he's the worst. The worst. But I also think he is grossly underestimating the power that Dr. Christine Ford's testimony is going to have, because everyone's going to be watching it. You bet. You and. Bet. Brett Kavanaugh is already wildly unpopular. I mean, for a Supreme Court justice, people don't care about this stuff usually. He gave you the number, uh, I think, on Monday a couple of days ago, 38%. 38%. 38%. And this is about a Supreme Court justice. Who cares? Like People usually don't care about this stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. And now, I'm sorry. I, you're not actually. It was 38 percent opposed, 34 percent support. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Which is the lowest of any Supreme Court nominee ever, ever, ever. Yeah. So, but this reminds me, by the way, of what Mitch McConnell did with the help, the Obamacare vote sure. uh, that John McCain sank at the last minute. He's going to Republicans and he's saying, I dare you to break with the party. I dare you to vote no. Will it work? We'll also, he's also, and the Republicans are taking a huge risk here, uh, when they think that by ramming this through, they, they, they believe this is going to be good for the party in the midterms. Donald Trump said that. Remember the midterms. Yesterday, he retweeted a comment from uh, Rush Limbaugh who said, Republicans can forget about the midterms if they don't put Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think it's just the opposite. I mean, if you look today, who, where is the energy today in American politics? It's particularly on the left, but it's particularly among women. And it's particularly among, in addition to uh, this enthusiasm among young millennials and progressives, it's among Republican women who have had it with Donald Trump, have had it with the Republican Party, and are voting for Democratic candidates. Republicans are losing their key constituency of suburban Republican women. And if there's anything that's going to further piss them off, or motivate them to vote against their own party, it's going to be the United Republicans in the United States Senate forcing through a nominee to the Supreme Court, ignoring the story of at least one woman or two women who have come forward with serious, serious accusations of sexual assault, not just sexual misconduct, sexual assault against him. And for Republican Party officially to show basically, to thumb their nose at the Me Too movement, 
in, in such dramatic fashion as that, I think will hurt them in the midterms, and they will live to regret it. Uh, j- just fine. If you think, though, that we can count on people like, you know, he's retiring. What does he have to lose? He's an independent thinker. He's been a critic of Donald Trump. So maybe, maybe Bob Corker can save the day. Oh, yeah? Here he is yesterday. There's nothing that has actually happened yet. There's been a lot of accusations uh, that has changed uh, has changed my feelings about my positive feelings about him. Yeah, there you go. What a Do you disappointment. Imagine? What a whole, what a huge disappointment. Do you imagine yeah. just watching the news cycle from the last week? How can week you and say that nothing that I've heard has caused me to think twice about this at all? Yeah. It's crazy. What what It's psychotic. Yeah. You know what little bubble that they live in, right? Uh unreal. Uh, by the way, one other thing happened yesterday. Yes, Donald Trump was up in New York, uh, and um, this is this big moment for the president of the United States to appear before the world leaders and to usually what American presidents, Republicans, and Democrats have done is to say, we're here to work with you. These are, There's some great challenges facing all of us, and we got to work together on issues of common concern like poverty and health care and, oh, God forbid, climate change and the economy and da-da-da, bum-bum-bum. No, Donald Trump went up basically and wanted to give a campaign speech talking about how great I am and how much I've accomplished. And he starts out that way and he get almost laughed off the stage. Here he is. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. How embarrassing. They're just laughing at him. First of all, it is so manifestly untrue. Think about it. In a year and a half, what has the Trump? He's done a lot of damage. What has he accomplished? A tax cut bill for the wealthiest of Americans? Hello? I mean, compare Donald Trump's administration. You don't have to go back to FDR. I mean, compare it to George Bush or compare it to Barack Obama. It's accomplished nothing. No, didn't repeal Obamacare. Didn't build the wall, didn't do anything about immigration reform, didn't do anything about infrastructure. One thing, one thing, tax cut bill for the wealthiest of Americans. That's it. I mean, no wonder they're laughing at him. The entire world is laughing at him. And sadly, the entire world is laughing at us because we elected this clown. I don't know if, That's, you, I don't know know if you saw this. You know. Sad. Fox News put out uh, oh, oh. the video of these comments, and they edited off the laughter. No. They left that part out. So, you know, it, it, it is kind of remarkable to watch a network that exists solely to convince this soggy dumbass that we have as president that he's doing a great job. <laughs> That's like all they do now. Yeah, right. I know. Oh, yes. I've accomplished more than anybody else. If you don't believe it, just ask me. There you go. Hey, a very important issue that uh, I must admit, 
I know nothing about, but I'm eager to find out about, is about America's maritime laws. Matt Woodruff, who's president of the American Maritime, we'll get away from politics here for just a moment. Well, different aspect of politics, maybe. Uh, Matt is president of the American Maritime Partnership. He's going to join us. Tell us all about it next. So uh, stay tuned. You, too, will learn something about this here on The Bill Press Show. Wednesday, September 26th. Again, your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. And here we are on this Wednesday, September 26th. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us. As we boom out to you coast to coast, uh, north, south, east, west, we are there with you wherever you are, online, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, joining you on television on Free Speech TV and on the radio on the great WCPT out in the Chicago area. One little reminder, of course, it is uh, time, if you haven't already done so, uh, go to our website at BillPressShow.com, find out about all about my new book, Trump Must Go, the top 100 reasons to dump Trump and maybe one to keep him. Um, most of those reasons are outlined here on the back cover, but you'll find out one through 100 uh, and where you can find a copy of the book, a signed copy of the book at BillPressShow.com. Uh, and don't forget, also there at BillPressShow.com is a chance and a place for you to add uh, reasons. We can't stop at 100. Uh, there are a lot more than 100. Uh, and you can add your own reasons as you go along at the BillPressShow.com. In fact, I want to do so today uh, and pick up on Donald Trump's comments about Deborah Ramirez. Uh, certainly one more reason, his personal attack on her uh, yesterday. Uh, and before we move along, a lot of you have been weighing in on what we've been talking about so far. Peter, you've got... Yes, indeed. Lots of comments uh, on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. Let me first off, first off, start with a poll that we have up right now. We uh, put it up yesterday about whether or not Brett Kavanaugh will actually make it to Thursday. Uh-huh. Um, we asked you, will he withdraw? Will he make it to Thursday, or is it a total toss-up? Right now, sixty-two percent of you say he will make it to Thursday. Looks more and more like it, actually. I think that's probably going to be the case. Uh, But in terms of your comments, which again, we're taking on any topic at any time. Uh, Lots of people weighing in on the Brett Kavanaugh situation. I mentioned the Fox News making sure that Donald Trump didn't see everyone laughing at him. Uh, Republican Swine says Fox News is nothing more than American Pravda. They should be regulated as a super PAC uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, also, uh, KG says Republicans will be opening the gates of hell for themselves and their party of traitors. It's a little bleak this morning, but, yeah. but, but also not wrong. Uh, if you have a comment, find us on Twitter at BP show at BP show. All right. Thank you. Now let's put the Kavanaugh thing and the politics aside for just a moment to talk about something that impacts us all, even though we may not know about it. And those are America's maritime laws. Matt, Woodruff is president of the American Maritime Partnership, joining us in studio. Hey, Matt, it's good to see you. Well, thank you for having uh, me. All the way from Houston, huh? Yes, yeah. absolutely. So, um, you, I, I, reading your report uh, or the, the executive summary of your new report about Ameri- about maritime laws in general, uh, it, there's the word cabotage, right? This sort of sums it all up. It's a that, that's that's what a this new re- word. It, so what what is cabotage all about? 
Well, cabotage, and I have no idea, I've always wondered where that word came from, but cabotage deals with moving cargo between two ports within a single country. That's pretty simple, right? I, I think so. Yeah. So it, 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 these are the laws that govern movement of cargo, right? In the various countries, correct. Okay. Yes. And it uh, includes, like, what, how much cargo you can carry and what kind of a ship you have and what... You, the 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 um, the work staff on them, how many people, and all that kind of stuff. It, it can be a lot of those things uh, in the United States. What our cabotage laws say is, if you're going to move cargo between two points in the U.S., you have to do it on a ship built in the United States, owned by Americans, flying the American flag, and crewed by American citizens primarily. Really? How long has that been in place? The uh, cabotage laws go to the earliest days of uh, our country. The particular law under which we operate today uh, was uh, passed in 1920. Aren't most ships in the world not, do not have the American flag, right? That's true. But all the ships moving cargo within the United States fly the American flag. Right. Where, where am I, what country is it that, isn't it one country that most ships are there are a number of what are called flags of convenience. Yeah, People that's who what own I'm vessels for, right. will flag under the Liberian flag, the Panamanian flag, the flag of the Marshall Islands. These are the countries yeah. that give them the best tax advantages and it's sort other of like all the banks end up getting, uh, you know, created in Delaware, right? Something like that. Yeah. So there are countries that are, that are but but if you're if you're between U.S. ports, and what is it mostly? Oil. Well, there's a lot of oil. There's a lot of grain uh, in the what we call the non-contiguous trades to Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. It's all manner of consumer goods, automobiles, uh, you know, the things that people need. And this is river traffic as well as um, uh, ocean traffic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, who's uh, And how about if you're – so do cabot these cabotage laws do not cover then – from, like, the U.S. to Japan or the U.S. to China, the U.S. to Europe? They do not. That, are there international cabotage laws? Well, uh, those are almost uh, – there are cabotage laws in other countries. So other countries – and that's part of what this study was designed to do – was determine what cabotage laws exist around the world. But almost by definition, those are mutually exclusive terms. You can't have yeah. international cabotage but foreign countries have their own cabotage laws that deal with transportation of cargoes within their countries. And what has your study determined? Uh, how, how many of these laws do exist? Well, the, uh, the study looked at 140 uh, UN member countries that had a coastline and found that 91 of those countries had some form of cabotage law. That's about 80% of the coastlines of the world. Ninety-one percent of them. Ninety-one yeah. out of one hundred and forty. Out of one hundred and forty. Right. Oh, I see. Ninety-one, not ninety-one percent. Right. Ninety-one out of one hundred and forty. Um, and um, so that. So I guess what you're saying is that, um, cargo is uh, the traffic, the 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 the, ca the cargo trade, right, is safer, uh, and better regulated where there are cabotage laws, and most of the countries have them. I think, uh, or over half at any rate. Right. I think that different countries and uh, the, the study didn't necessarily try to determine why each country had its cabotage laws. 
And some countries, they make an express statement that we hereby enact this law to achieve these goals. Not everyone has done that. But I think that different countries have used different justifications, whether it's environmental protection, whether it's national security, whether it's the economic security, uh, the goal to employ citizens of their country to expand uh, their maritime industry, to protect their shipyard industrial base. Uh, there are a host of reasons why countries, most countries, have cabotage. I was laws. going to ask you about the uh, environmental consequences um, because there have been a lot of questions about ships either dumping trash or oil leaks. Or uh, Have those environmental protections been toughened up on American cargo particularly? Uh, I think that we have seen a, a dramatic increase over, you know, if you look back to the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, which followed the Exxon Valdez spill, the environmental record of the domestic industry has really improved. The The procedures, the vessels were now 100% double hull vessels for our tank vessels, the, the training, and I think uh, it's the culture of the industry has dramatically changed. And as a consequence of that, we've seen a dramatic drop in, in the number of oil spills, which is, I think, one measure that's important to uh, uh, folks out there in terms of uh, our performance, certainly not the only measure. Uh, you not only have to worry about spilling oil, but you have to worry about the management of trash, as you say, uh, right. and uh, emissions, fuel efficiency, CO2, you name it. Are there minimum wage laws on for uh, crews of ships, well, cargo ships? American ships are subject, uh, and American crews are subject to all American laws. So absolutely, uh, uh, the the wage laws. Uh, quite frankly, uh, that's one of the uh, the bright spots uh, I think about American maritime is uh, uh, you can make a wonderful living working on uh, on a vessel in the United States. How about cruise ships? How have they uh, changed the landscape, or good or bad? Well, I'm not. Uh, I don't purport no. to be an expert in cruise ships. We do have some American flag cruise ships that operate along the coast. The vast majority of cruise ships are foreign flag and foreign crewed, and they operate in international commerce rather than domestic commerce. Even the companies that are you know, attracting Americans and selling cruises to Americans, that these are foreign ships for the most part? Those are almost exclusively foreign ships built overseas with foreign crews that uh, quite frankly, uh, don't have uh, the wages and other uh, benefits that uh, American seafarers would have. Yeah, and not necessarily all the environmental, environmental protections either, I guess. Uh, and, 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 and most of them do. If they, even if they leave an American port, they're usually going to the Caribbean or Mexico or wherever. There are very few, I think, that would go just from one American city to another American city. That's true. Yeah. Um, what are you, so the, the subject of your report, you've completed your report, what's next? Are you, are you looking for, are there, did you see that the need for any particular improvements in America's maritime laws that you are uh, asking Congress for? Or? We're not. We, uh, I think the, the, the wonderful thing about this study, and this actually was done by, uh, it was commissioned by the International Transport Workers Federation and uh, was done actually by the Seafarers' Rights International, a group that has international reach and was able to, to find uh, 
lawyers in the 140 different nations to help them compile this. I think from the perspective of the American Maritime Partnership, we're often asked, what are the uh, cabotage laws elsewhere? Are we unique in the United States because we have cabotage laws? And we haven't been well equipped to answer that question. There have been some surveys done many years ago, and they were partial surveys. Nobody really had ever done a, a comprehensive review such as this one. And so I think what it helps is provide perspective uh, to show that America is not unique in having cabotage laws, that most of the, the countries of the world do. And many of the people who are our trading partners and who would have us walk away from our cabotage laws actually have their own cabotage laws, which they enforce. So um, who are the members of the American Maritime Partnership? The American Maritime Partnership is probably the broadest coalition ever put together of the American maritime industry. It consists of the people who build vessels, the, the shipyards, the, the people who own the vessels, the people who crew the vessels. We, we try to speak for everyone who cares about uh, having an American merchant marine. So you got the people who build the ships, the people who own the ships, the people who run the ships, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, where are we building? Are we building ships in this country still? Absolutely. We, uh, I mean, I know there used to be some big shipyards in you know, Brooklyn or San Diego, but where are they today? Uh, we have shipyards actually throughout the United States. We have, uh, there's uh, the Philly shipyard in Philadelphia. Uh, there's uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, there's a uh, base ship building out on the West Coast in uh, San Diego. Uh, you in have San Diego. a shipyard uh, there. Uh, there are a number of shipyards in Texas, in Brownsville, Texas. There's two container ships. Uh, actually, I think they started cutting steel this week. Uh, mm -hmm. In Mississippi, we have shipyards. Florida, yeah, you know, throughout the inland waterways, we have shipyards that build towboats and barges. So uh, we have a vibrant shipbuilding industry. There's about between forty and 50,000 U.S. flag vessels engaged in the domestic trade. But right. those huh. are vessels, mostly tugs and barges, that are since we're talking about the domestic trade, those vessels are, are fine-tuned for the needs of domestic customers. Right. We don't hear about that, uh, the shipbuilding industry in this country that much anymore. It's interesting to know. Uh, final question. So what about, so you've got 91 out of 140. Uh, what are you going to do about these other countries that don't have capitalization laws? Is uh, part of your project now to put some pressure on them to say, uh, get with the program and uh, enact some laws of your own like we have? Well, I, I don't know what uh, the International Transport Workers Federation uh, uh, would do, but uh, in the case of AMP, we're the American Maritime Partnership, so we're going to focus on what happens here. And uh, I, I think what this is is it's a resource for other countries who are considering what their laws should be, that they can uh, now have a resource and see what others do. Yeah. Well, good work, and thanks for coming in to bring us up to date uh, on this Im important uh, area of uh, of uh, American law, which uh, I knew nothing about until today. It's the American Maritime Partnership, and Matt, as I understand, your website is AmericanMaritimePartnership.com. Dot org, I think. Dot org? Okay, dot org. I better Must double check. Probably. Uh, but um, the, um, yes, dot org. Um, and they can, people can find out about the report. Absolutely. Uh, Lots yeah, of information available there. All right. Good to see you. Thanks so much Thank for coming you, in. All right. Thanks for right. having me. All right. American, part, American Maritime Partnership .org. Uh, Yes, back to the uh, news of the day. Yes, indeed. 
uh, it all revolves around the decision announced by um, the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Chuck Grassley yesterday. Yep, we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Christine Ford on um, on Thursday, and then we're not going to take any time. We're just going to rush into a vote on Friday. Now, they say technically that doesn't mean we are going to vote on Friday, but but we are required if if we want to vote on Friday, we are required to announce a vote three days in advance. So therefore, basically, just to cover our ass, is what they said yesterday, we're going to announce a vote on Friday, which we may or may not go through with, but you know what? They plan to go through with it. They're getting pressure from Mitch McConnell to go through with it. They're getting pressure from Donald Trump, who called Mitch McConnell and uh, and said, get this thing over with, get this guy through, get him on the court, stop dragging it out. McConnell and Trump reportedly are um, actually frustrated with Chuck Grassley because they think Chuck Grassley has been too nice to Christine Ford to delay the hearing where she will testify from Monday to Thursday uh, of this week. So the point is, the whole thing is a farce. The whole thing is a joke. The whole thing is a scam. They're going to pretend to listen to her on Thursday, and they're going to vote on Friday in the committee, and then Mitch McConnell has made it pretty clear he's going to have a vote early next week on the nomination. Uh, so anything, any talk about a fair process, remember Brett Kavanaugh said, on Fox News he said like 15 times, all I want is a fair process, a fair process. That's what the American people want is a fair process. Does this look fair? Yeah. Does this sound fair to anybody? Anybody think this looks fair? Yeah, that's all Christine Ford wants is a fair process. That's all Deborah Ramirez wants is a fair process. And she won't even be heard at this point, won't even be heard at all. You know, it was really interesting yesterday. We saw a lot more people, Democrats in particular, sort of going back to this idea, why in the world are we not having an FBI investigation? And it, it's very, very simple once you realize what's going on. They don't want an FBI investigation because that means that you could, as you've pointed out, you could get in serious trouble if you lie during an FBI investigation. Mark Judge should be forced to tell his side of the story to the FBI. Brett Kavanaugh should be forced to say this to the FBI under oath to tell his side of the story. And Christine Ford, who, by the way, is begging for an FBI investigation, should be able to tell her side of the story. Right now. Just if if you believe what some of these people are saying, some of these goblins in the in the Republican Party, that she's making it up or misremembering, if she goes to the FBI and she says something that is not true, yeah, she could go to jail. Why would she risk that? And at the same time, why is everybody else on the Republican side of this story so scared to talk to the FBI? Yeah, and as we learned yesterday from Melanie Sloan, who's our guest, um, it wouldn't take the FBI long, you know? It could no. take them 24 hours. Uh, they did this for Anita Hill. They put things on hold long enough for the FBI to look into her uh, allegations. Uh, they could easily do it for Christine Ford, to, for Deborah Ramirez, uh, and they refused to do so. By the way, um, we haven't heard from, um, remember, there was at the thought, 
that there might be a third woman coming forward. Michael Avenatti, uh, Stormy Daniels' attorney, actually said um, that he had a client who was also a victim of sexual assault by Brett Kavanaugh. She was willing to testify. She was willing to also be interviewed by the FBI uh, and was ready to come forward. And he promised to come forward with her name and her story at first, he said, within 48 hours and then within 36 hours. We haven't heard from him lately. Um, it looks like Michael Avenatti may have been scammed. Um, he denies it. But uh, I must say, he's a little bit of a showboat. And I, <laughs> a little bit of a showboat? No, he's a showboat. Uh, he's done a good job representing Stormy Daniels. Um, but you've heard me say before, I think it's a total joke that he would think about running for president. And in this case, I'm just raising the possibility. He denies it, but it looks like that somebody may have actually uh, scammed him, got to him with the story, and he ran with it. And now <clears throat> he's got egg on his face. Um, certainly, certainly, I'd have to say to him that if he does have a credible third party, yeah. now's the time now's to step time. up. You're going to have to. If it's real, you you got you to gotta prove it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, the president, any any restraint that Donald Trump on Donald Trump's part, any restraint that there may have been initially with Christine Ford, of course, that disappeared last weekend. Uh, he has shown zero restraint at all when it comes to Deborah Ramirez, the second woman who's uh, who came forward uh, through the New Yorker magazine and a piece written by Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer online Sunday night, Don Trump immediately has said she's uh, she's a liar. Uh, it's a whole con job. Even up in New York yesterday, uh, he said again to reporters that this woman doesn't have anything to add. Donald Trump, yeah, therefore the United Nations meeting with world leaders. But what's he talking about? He's talking about Deborah Ramirez. She said, well, it might not be him, and there were gaps, and she said she was totally inebriated, and she was all messed up, and she doesn't know it was him, but it might have been him. Oh, gee, let's not make him a Supreme Court judge because of that. He tweeted last night, I just wanted to read his tweet uh, from yesterday, uh, the Democrats are playing a high-level con game, con game in their yeah. vicious effort to destroy a fine person. It is called the politics of destruction. Behind the scene, the Dems are laughing. Pray for Brett Kavanaugh and his family. You know, the thing is, you could say all these things like that, that about Les Moonves. Oh, it's terrible. How? Why would we ruin his career? You know, I mean... Just a very because, fine man. A very fine man, right? Uh, and he said that about other people who've been who've been accused, <laughs> including himself. Uh, Donald Trump even said yesterday how horrible this would be for the country. How horrible were Brett Kavanaugh to be denied a seat uh, on the Supreme Court? It would be a horrible insult to our country if this doesn't happen. And, and it'll be a horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> For future political people, judges, anything you want, it'd be a horrible thing. It, it cannot, it cannot be allowed to happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just think about. Let's just think about how horrible it would be if somebody of the character of Brett Kavanaugh gets on the Supreme Court. And, and not, not many people are talking about this. You know what this, what the court would look like with a member who's gone through this circus ending up sitting on the Supreme Court. 
it really reduces the dignity of the entire Supreme Court. And I think it makes it less credible, less admirable, less believable uh, to the American people. And it will be that way for decades. That last clip of Trump saying we cannot allow it to happen is so indicative. They are going to do everything that they possibly can. Can't allow it to happen, yeah. And think about it. So this court will sit there with two men, both of whom got on the Supreme Court despite very credible accusations of sexual misconduct. Clarence Thomas and, if that happens, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Again... The role of women in the Me Too movement. Joycelyn Fry joins us next from the Center for American Progress. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from the Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And the judge tells Bill Cosby, the time has come, the day has come. Three to ten years he started serving that sentence yesterday afternoon. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is The Bill Press Show on a Wednesday. Wednesday, September 26th. Great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us here as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., the capital of the free world, and that's where you find us, uh, right in the heart of the action on Capitol Hill and our studio just down the street from the United States Capitol Building, where the circus continues uh, with a hearing now scheduled for tomorrow, at which uh, Dr. Christine Ford and Brett Kavanaugh will both testify she will be interrogated by a female, uh, an attorney, a prosecutor from the state of Arizona, hired by Senate Republicans, so the 11 white men don't have to make any further fools of, themse- of themselves. Uh, and then on Friday, the uh, committee has scheduled, the chairman of the committee has scheduled a vote, so much for taking the time for a fair process and to give senators really a chance to weigh her testimony uh, frankly, they might as well have the vote today because the, nothing's going to change. They've already made that pretty clear. Pretty sad situation there. we got our eye on that, plus our eye on Bill Cosby and our eye on Donald Trump up at the U.N. yesterday. Yes, the entire world laughing at him. We'll bring you the news of the day, and with the help today of taking a look at the Kavanaugh situation, uh, with our good friend, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, Jocelyn Fry, who joins us in studio. Jocelyn, nice to see you. Thank, thank you. Nice to see you, Thanks too. for coming back in. Absolutely. We've got lots to talk about, and uh, look forward to hearing from you and your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. 
But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, you used to be a teacher. Uh, yeah. So let me ask you a question. Let's say you gave some homework to your students uh-huh. and they didn't do it. What grade would you give them if they just didn't turn anything in? Well, I mean, if once or like ever. Uh, I mean, if they didn't turn do any homework at all, if they I'd didn't flunk do them. any of it. I'd flunk them. They get a zero, right? That's yeah. the, if you don't do the work at all, you get a zero. Well, in Port St. Lucie, Florida, there is a new policy that if you don't do your homework, they are saying that you get half credit. 50. Not 100. 50. So there was a teacher, Miss Tirado, who was recently fired, and she said that the reason that she was fired is because she continued to give her students who did not turn in homework a zero, and the Port St. Lucie, Florida, says, no, you have to give them half credit even if they don't do their homework. So she was fired. That's ridiculous. It feels ridiculous, right? That feels yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And you, what's a message to a kid? Yeah. It doesn't matter. Don't have to do your homework. Yeah. The rule is no zeros. The lowest possible grade is 50%. Uh, and she has been fighting this, and she refuses to go along with it, and so now she is out of a job. Well, good for her for refusing to go along with it. It's too bad she's out of a job. but Yeah. Uh, we talked in the last oh, the school districts. I think would hire her. It's a little so. crazy. Yeah, it's a li- the story is a little crazy. We talked last hour about how Dunkin' Donuts will no longer be Dunkin' Donuts. They are just going to be Dunkin'. Also, another big company is changing their name. Weight Watchers is no longer <laughs> going to be Weight Watchers. Oh no! They are just changing their name to WW. That's it. <laughs> just WW. Uh, because they say it's not just about the number on the scale. They are going to focus not only on living a healthy lifestyle, but just health and wellness in general. In fact, Oprah Winfrey, who is uh, a member of the company's board, she owns an 8% stake in Weight Watchers. She says that the role uh, that WW can play in people's lives goes far beyond the number on the scale. So they're saying that... You can be healthy in a lot of ways besides just the, the, the number of how much you weigh. Well, you know, there's AA, right? Sure. Now there's WW. WW. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I've got a sister and a brother spend a lot of time at WW. Okay. This is the Bill Press Show. Yeah, Donald Trump says we need a president who isn't a laughing stock to the world. Yeah, too bad we don't have one. We have a president who is a laughing stock to the world, as we learned yesterday at the United Nations. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the program. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. This Wednesday, September 26th. It's so good to see you today. You're looking good out there in the great United States of America, wherever you are in this great land of ours. We are there right alongside of you on online, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hello, Chicago. We're there with you on WCPT out in the greater Chicago area and uh, nationwide, coast to coast on Free Speech TV. Uh, the question keeps getting asked, why do these women wait so long? Why don't they come forward? Jocelyn Fry is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, uh, who is uh, her area of expertise is the Me Too movement. 
and joining us in studio. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, too. So, you know, we had sort of um, two ends of the Me Too movement yesterday, Jocelyn. Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of where the movement started almost, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. before Harvey Weinstein, we right. heard about Bill Cosby. It's true. Right? Absolutely. And then we got to show that maybe nothing has changed. <laughs> Republicans forcing through a Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Right, right. right. So it worked in one case and it's not working in another case. Um, the Cosby, um, the Cosby matter, this took a long time, right? But It did take a long time. I mean, it took a lot of perseverance by a lot of women um, and uh, committed uh, uh, prosecutors to really investigate the case. And, you know, it's a, it's a troubling um, um, case, but I, I think it reveals a lot of the reasons why people don't come forward, you know, particularly when the person is powerful um, and can have control over... um, And popular. And popular and can have control over your livelihood. Um, And in those situations, uh, you know, unfortunately, the way our culture works, the way our processes work, um, it's very hard for somebody, certainly standing by themselves, um, to actually prosecute something or, or pursue something and have their claim heard, considered fairly, investigated, and carried all the way through. And, um, you know, we saw the culmination of really decades of work uh, uh, in uh, Mr. Cosby's situation. And um, I, I think now we're seeing some of those hurdles in real time with Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. Right. Um, what motivated the women in, in Bill Cosby's case to come forward? I mean, were they just out to get him, or did they just feel that, you know, this was a practice that, that should not have been tolerated should not, and, and didn't want anybody else to have to suffer what they did? You know, I, I think, you know, every bit of research that I've seen um, – points to survivors really first having to work through these issues themselves, but also, you know, ultimately wanting some vindication of their rights and to make sure that this doesn't happen to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, nobody can put a timetable on somebody's pain. It can take a month. It could take a day. It could take a year. It could take 20 years. Um, But I think the other dynamic that happened, and we've certainly seen this throughout the Me Too movement, is that when one person steps forward, that also gives other people confidence to step forward, particularly when the person is somebody who is well-known um, and has the backing of a lot of big, powerful institutions. Right. So in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, we now have at least two, pardon me, two women who have come forward. And for, for at least a week, I mean, this has happened so fast, it was only Dr. Christine Ford. And um, a lot of people said... There's some. There, there will be others. It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. But is that that is that usually the case? Meaning someone who has this this propensity, it's most of the time not going to be a single isolated case, but a pattern of behavior. Um, you is know, that what you find uh, it's frequently the case. Um, you know, I can't say for certain that it's absolute statistical yeah. certainty, but it is often the case that a person who engages in this type of conduct, particularly really egregious conduct, um, it's not just a one-time 
uh, situation. And so it's certainly not surprising that other women have come forward, and it's certainly consistent with other types of cases. When Deborah Ramirez, um, in her story to The New Yorker, the second accuser for Brett, against Brett Kavanaugh, um, she said that it took her like six days thinking about it and probing it and talking to some people uh, to really convince herself that, yes, he was the guy and this is what happened. Does that strike you as strange or is that kind of par for the course? Is it unusual that it would take someone, that someone could take six days before they're really sure that this is... Not, not at all. What the I memory mean, is? Uh, you know, not at all. I think people um, can take a while to process memories. I mean, I think many of the cases that we've seen around this issue, people have processed memories over years. So I don't think the, the time frame is actually surprising at all. And I think, you know, whenever you encounter a trauma, um, it takes you a while to work through it. And uh, you know, that timetable just can't be predicted uh, as being right uh, in one situation and not in another. You know, it, it really just depends on the individual person. So I think a six-day time period, quite frankly, is not unusual and is actually fairly um, uh, fast uh, when you look at other cases. Right. So what's, I, I think what strikes me and what's striking a lot of people today is the absolute contrast between um, the energy and the passion of the Me Too movement and the total cold shoulder of Republicans in the United States Senate. I mean, even if you just physically go down to that building, uh, and I was there uh, last week, I mean, the women who are flooding the Hart Building and the Capitol every day Mm -hmm. in front of the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. telling their stories chanting that we believe Christine Ford. I mean, there are thousands of them, mm-hmm. and a lot of them young, and a lot of them have their own stories to tell and everything. And 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 this is on top of some, if you want, I think remarkable success in, in holding some people accountable to what they have done. You know, if you look at Bill O'Reilly or Roger Ailes or Les Moonves or whomever, and yet, the United States Senate is so, it's like it never ha- doesn't exist, the Me Too movement. I think that's right. It's as if, as if they haven't been listening or watching or in, having heard anything. They certainly didn't, haven't learned anything since 1991 and Anita Hill. I think that's and there's right. three members of the committee who were there then who are there today. I think either they haven't learned anything or what they learned is how to obfuscate and ignore the the reality of sexual harassment and assault. Um, either way, it's reprehensible, um, particularly for the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, when you consider the fact that this is the committee that handles these issues, that will handle things like the Violence Against Women Act, that is supposed to be the front line on these issues for all Americans. And it is as if they didn't learn anything since 1991, and as if they haven't been paying attention over the last year. And I think um, it's not just about the women who've experienced these issues. I think anybody who is concerned about sexual assault, sexual harassment, ought to be um, not simply alarmed, but you know, quite frankly, just uh, disgusted with the the level of inattention and, and lack of responsiveness by 
um, the leadership. What's it tell you that they're going to hear from Christine Ford on Thursday and vote on Friday? I think it tells me that they haven't been paying attention to how you handle these types of cases. It also tells me that they have sort of made up their minds before they've even heard from her. And they're more fundamentally sort of abdicating what their responsibility is. Their responsibility isn't to give the seat on the court to their preferred candidate. Their obligation is to do a robust review of whoever the nominee's record is um, and to consider all evidence. And they've, you know, they're very clear. Um, You know, Senator McConnell was on the floor earlier this week making his case for basically saying, we're going to get him over the finish line. Um, And that's what the president has said. That's what all of the, the, as you said, white male members of this committee have said on the on the Republican side. So I think their agenda is clear. And, you know, quite honestly, I mean, uh, you know, it's incredible the bravery and courage of Dr. Blasey Ford, but I think it sends a terrible message to other uh, survivors, um, and it raises real questions why anybody would ever want to come forward. You know, one of the things that that has been a thread that we've seen in, in a lot of the different cases of either sexual assault or sexual harassment or sexual abuse uh, on, on a number of different levels is alcohol. Mm-hmm. And not to Mm-hmm. excuse it and say that you know alcohol is the reason that these people do it but alcohol seems to be a threat in a lot of these things mm-hmm. and you know I, I was really struck by the Fox News interview that Brett Kavanaugh did with uh, Martha McCallum earlier this week where he essentially said no he, he, he wasn't a drinker he didn't drink they were at high school parties where the 18 year olds when drinking the drinking age was 18 were drinking but he would never do it and we know now that that is an absolute lie there have been multiple people who have come out and said yes he was a very heavy drinker in high school like the, i mean countless people have come forward to say that uh you just look at his yearbook stuff you look at this his friend king mark, of the kegs right. king of the kegs you look at the mark judge uh situation and to me it's just like if he's willing to go out there and lie about something like that look if he came out and said yeah you know what i, I was i was on, i was in high school I, I i drank every now and then i think that's normal. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would hold that against him, that particular thing against him, but he's willing to lie about that, so it's he's certainly willing to lie about sexual assault. One of his classmates at Yale is quoted in the Washington Post this morning as saying, this idea that Brett Kavanaugh was his model student is crazy. He was a sloppy drunk, she calls it. Here's here's one of the the, the, quotes. One woman remembers Judge Kavanaugh wearing a leather football helmet while drinking and approaching her on campus the night he was uh, tapped for DKE. He described, uh, which was a, a, a fraternity. fraternity. Mm-hmm. He de- uh, she described his grabbing his crotch, hopping on one leg, and chanting, I'm a geek, I'm a geek, I'm a power tool. When I sing this song, I look like a fool. Nearly a dozen people who knew him well or socialized with him said Judge Kavanaugh was a very heavy drinker in college. Dr. Swisher said she saw him, quote, very drunk a number of times. His former freshman year roommate described his stumbling in at all hours of the night. And his roommate says he did not see this incident that Deborah Mimiris talks about or exposed himself to her, forced him to touch her, uh, forced her to touch him. But the roommate says 
it's very believable, right. and he believes Deborah Ramirez. Right, so. right. I mean, I think that um, you know the record speaks for itself, and uh, I think what it points out is a couple things. One is this is why uh, Doctor you know Blasey Ford's request for an independent FBI investigation yes. was so important because there are a lot of facts um, that could come to light that could either show that she's telling the truth, it could be corroborative, it could show a pattern, a whole host of things that you want law enforcement to look into. Um, It also reinforces um, the credibility gap that Judge Kavanaugh already has had. I mean, this is not the first instance where he said one thing and then the record shows another, whether it's what he said about Roe v. Wade or whether or not he worked on certain judicial nominations or so forth. So I think um, this is, you know, a part of another troubling pattern. Um, and I also think it, it it is a reminder that this committee continues to make the same mistakes that it made in 1991. I mean, this is the exactly what happened to Anita Hill. Um, they ignored the facts. They didn't bring people forward um, so that they could move uh, now Justice Thomas through. Now, you mentioned uh, Mitch McConnell. He was on the floor again yesterday. Uh, and he keeps coming back to um, this charge. They keep want to, they want to focus on old, unsubstantiated, right, that it took so long. And so, I mean, that's, that's where they keep going to the timing of it. Here's Mitch McConnell. The American people also insist that vague, unsubstantiated, and uncorroborated allegations of 30-plus-year-old misconduct where all the supposed witnesses either totally deny it or can't confirm it is nowhere near grounds to nullify someone's career or destroy their good name. So it happened so long ago, right, is the, is the one point they make, and they brought it forward, as Mr. McConnell keeps saying, the last minute, last minute, last minute, therefore should not even be considered. Well, I think it's actually precisely the opposite. I mean, I think that the fact that it finally got brought forward is actually critical. This is the person going on the Supreme Court. Um, It's the highest court in the land. Uh, If you're not going to bring it forward now, when will you bring it forward? So I think the notion that somehow um, it's too long uh, doesn't make sense. I think, you know, the length of time is the reality of what happens in these cases. And quite frankly, the mishandling of this um, and the bias that the committee has shown in the handling of Dr. Ford's case um, is exactly why people wait, right? Like who wants to affirmatively put themselves in this this situation? She's had to leave her home. She's getting death threats um, and she's being vilified and criticized by all these people who've never met her. So I think, um, you know, their very actions are why people wait a long time. Um, And we know that from, you know, most uh, survivors, Um, they don't think that they're going to be believed. No, I mean, I was saying that. If you want to know why women wait, why women don't come forward, look at the way the the Senate Judiciary Committee has handled Christine Ford. That answers your question right right then and there. Look at the way the President of the United States talked about Deborah Ramirez yesterday. Right. That's why women don't come forward. Right. You know, they face that. So what is what what does what does it say to the what does it say about the Supreme Court of the United States if we end up with Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, both who who are sitting on the court even though serious and credible charges of sexual assault were, were leveled against them. You know, harassment in the case of Clarence Thomas. You know, I think it undermines the credibility of the institution. And that's ultimately 
um, a disservice for all of us. Um, you know, we we live at a very partisan moment, um, and the one thing that we would like to be able to at least believe is that when a case gets before the court, that you have very smart, intelligent people who don't have an agenda considering the case. And, you know, increasingly the court has become sort of a, a fodder for partisan preferences. And now, you know, I don't know how any person who has a sexual harassment case or a sexual assault case um, and has it heard by those justices, if they were both on the court, could be certain that those cases would be heard fairly. Yeah. I mean, they almost, you would think, have to recuse themselves. Right. Well, and they won't. But they won't. They won't. I mean, certainly Justice Thomas has not recused himself from sexual harassment cases that have come before him. Um, And his decisions in several of them are, are not positive. So I don't, I, I think that we should want better for our court. Um, and as I said, nobody nobody has a right to a seat on the Supreme Court. This is a privilege and the process is supposed to be one whether you where you look really closely at whether this person really measures up. Right. Now one consideration which may not be the most important consideration, but you can't avoid it, is what impact this Kavanaugh matter will have on the midterms, because they're right around the corner. Um the Republicans are banking on the fact that they're going to benefit by railroading Kavanaugh onto the court. Donald Trump himself yesterday retweeted a Rush Limbaugh comment, Republicans can forget about the midterms unless they put Kavanaugh on the court, so that this is going to be good for them. On the other hand, um, some people are warning that if women are such a force today, which they are, in American politics by ignoring Christine Ford, treating her the way they did, uh, ignoring her and ignoring Deborah Maris is going to hurt them, could hurt them in the midterms. How do you read it? Um, well, I think it's a little bit of an unknown. You know, my my um, take on this is do that- Do women they, know about this? Or are they pissed off about it? I think women know, and I think they're paying attention, and I think they're angry. Um, you know, I think um, at least some in the leadership are making a calculation that they'll get some support for moving uh, Judge Kavanaugh Especially forward. from evangelicals? Especially from at least some group of evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. But I think that the other calculation that they're making is that they're playing a long game versus a short game. And, and I think, uh, you know, there's an open question about whether they, even if they think they're going to... Uh, uh, invite more um, women coming out, that it's a price they're willing to pay to have the impact on the court for decades to come. And I think that's what's troubling. Um, you know, if um, sometimes the public and voters can hold people accountable, right? <laughs> so I think if they were really concerned about, you know, what the voting outcome might be, maybe you would see a little more caution or, or brevity. But I think this is about getting him through about certainly delivering to the base, no question about it. Um, but I'm not sure if uh, the concern is the outcome of the midterms or really just the outcome on their political agenda in the court. So what you're saying is they, they might even consider that even if they were to lose control of the Senate, if they get Brett Kavanaugh on the court, he's going to be there for decades and could have more of an impact on issues across the board. 
I think that's right. I mean, I and that's and pretty, it's that's pretty frightening. It is, but I think it's a reality that we're going to have to confront. Is that you know he's a young person, um, you know, certainly relative on the court, and probably would have many years um, to impact law, um, you know, with a um, uh, a political agenda in mind, and I think that's um, that's distressing. Um, and it should be a cause for concern for anybody, um, not only around sexual assault and harassment, but there are many issues that are going to come before that court and are already poised to come before the court, whether it's issues around reproductive rights, equal pay, um, you know, unions, organizing, you know, all those issues matter to regular folks. Yeah. Uh, One manifestation of the Me Too movement um, uh, in addition to what we see uh, every day down at the Capitol in terms of Brett Kavanaugh, is that um, stepping back in the midterm elections in terms of candidates through Emily's List and other organizations, Run for Something and the rest, there are more women candidates than ever before at every level, city council, state legislature, uh, for Congress, for mm-hmm. Senate, and it is, um, it's very exciting, you know, and, and that's a direct, isn't it, a kind of um, offset or a result of the Me Too movement, where they're saying, you know, we're gonna, yeah, we can make a difference, and I want to be there to be, to be a vote and to be part of the process. I think that's right. I think that the Me Too movement has really spurred a lot of women to get engaged and to say, um, not simply ask people to do things, but say, if it's not going to get done, I'll do it myself. Um, I, I think it's also in response to the broader climate that has been, you know, very antagonistic and hostile towards women coming from this administration across a number of issues. Um, and I mean, that is one of the most positive and exciting byproducts of this is that, you know, women across the country are just being energized and coming forward. And we have some terrific um, women running for office all across the country. You know, I saw yesterday that um, back in 1967, 97% of the members of the House were male, right? Today, last year, 2017, uh, racial minorities made up 45% people of color, 45% and women, 33%. Mm. So a big change in the House. And next year, if the Democrats who are in the primaries today, like Ayanna Presley and you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm. and others, I first forget her name, the first Muslim woman, the first Native American right. woman. Deb Holland and right. Rashida Tlaib. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, right. yeah. Incredible candidates. Mm-hmm. If all these women that we think are going to win will win, that the... Um, the House next year will be more diverse than ever and more women than ever. That's amazing. It's long overdue. And I think women can, will have an extraordinary impact on um, not simply because they're more women. Um, but, you know, I think one of the underlying issues around, you know, when you look at the Kavanaugh nomination in particular, but not unique to that, is the failure of the institution to change, right? Like, it's not just about the fact that there are members who have been around forever. It's that the institution is fundamentally operating the same way it, it has for years. And uh, you need new people who can... F- change the status quo, can transform the process, can disrupt the system and say, you know, we just need to think about doing this stuff differently. And 
I think their their presence is long overdue and very welcome. Right. And they will be joining already, uh, I might add, some great progressives uh, who are already shaking things up mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, uh, one of whom is going to join us next here on the Bill Press Show, Congressman Mark Pocan, uh, co-chair of the uh, Congressional um, Progressive Caucus uh, from the great state of Wisconsin. Uh, and with that, Jocelyn, thanks so much for coming in today and really helping us understand what's going on and the importance of the movement. Um, and you can follow Justin's work and all of our good friends over at CAP, as we call it, at AmericanProgress.org. Quick break. Congressman Mark Pocan joining us next. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, here we go on a Wednesday, Wednesday, September 26th. How about it? It is the Bill Press Show, and you are very much a part of it and very uh, grateful that you are such a part of the show. Always send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show as we join you uh, online, on the radio, and on television all across this great uh, country of ours. Uh, another little reminder, best place to find out all about my new book, <laughs> Trump Must Go, the top 100 reasons. There are a lot more. Yes, there are a lot more, but I... <laughs> I exercised a little discipline, kept it down to 100, top top 100 reasons to dump Trump and one to keep him. Go to our website at billpressshow.com and find out how you can get a copy, a signed copy of the book, um, and also where you can add your own reasons for dumping Donald Trump. There are a lot more than 100, uh, and I've been adding reasons. A lot of you have, so you do so at the billpressshow.com. Uh, and this is even more fodder for the canon of good progressives like Congressman Mark Buchan <laughs> from Wisconsin. He doesn't need this book. He knows already. <laughs> I thought you were uh, going to put a series out of books. Like we'll, we'll have like, like the, you know, 20 volumes or something. <laughs> the top 100 and then the next 100 right, and then right. the next 100 <laughs> until he's gone. Right. Yes. <laughs> Congressman Mark Buchan from Wisconsin's second district. Good to see you, Congressman. Yeah, good to see you, Bill. Thank what, you. What have you been up to out there uh, stirring things up? Well, it's, it's you know, we're so close to the election now. Um, been doing a little traveling, uh, helping out some candidates. Uh, got some unbelievably great races around the country to try to take the majority back in the House. A lot of great progressive candidates. Yes. I think we're at about 40-ish, give or take, uh, candidates we've endorsed uh, that could be coming into the Congress from the caucus. Progressive Caucus. Correct. Um, so that's a good chunk of people that may be joining in. I mean, there's a lot of other things that you know people don't know. There's like, I think there's 30 people, and maybe it's even a bigger number now, in the red to blue program who are running corporate money free that could very likely get elected. How would that change uh, the way Washington works? I mean, there's just a lot of exciting things in the incoming class and the potential class that uh, you know we're, we're just monitoring and trying to see how that's going to change things. Uh, I know it's always risky, but, but because you'll forget, <laughs> you'll leave the studio and you forget somebody you should have mentioned. But what are a couple of races that you're most excited about? We've heard you know, all about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, about yep. Ayanna Presley up in um, Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. right. Um, about the the Muslim-American woman in... Elam. Uh, or or um, there, there's two. There's Michigan and Minnesota, Michigan. right? I mean, I was thinking of Michigan, but yeah. also Rashida. Minnesota. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you know, our first Native American woman uh, will be elected out right. of uh, New Mexico. I mean, so we've heard of those. What yeah. are what a yeah, couple so of other me, races that you're real that we may not know about? Let me give you a couple from the you. upper Midwest. I mean, okay. um, one that people have heard about, but they shouldn't forget about is Randy Bryce. You know, taking oh, in, iron stash. Thank you. When an yes. iron worker scares away the speaker 
Speaker of the House of Representatives. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We have to make sure that we continue to support him because they're throwing everything at him. Unfortunately, he had an ugly primary uh, with someone who only ran negative, who lost, of course, but uh, had the same message as the Ryan Super PAC, so they spent a lot of money against him. Uh, and uh, now the Ryan Super PAC has his uh, brother, who's a police officer, running an ad against him, uh, making his mother cry. I mean, it's just like, it's a, it's a pathetically mean race, and Randy is one of the nicest, most real people. We need more people like Randy Bryce. That's one that you know, people should still follow. I'll tell you, a absolutely. Sl- one that's a sleeper. He's been, and a sh- he's been in studio with us. He's an iron worker. Iron yeah. worker. Yeah. So great. we got to keep keep him in our our uh, Good. actions. The other one, I think that I, I just want to mention that um, I was going to say it's a sleeper, but that's not fair because I think it's woke up. Uh, is um, Kara Eastman in Omaha, Nebraska? So she uh, hmm. in the primary beat a former member, Brad Ashford, who was a former colleague of mine, uh, but more moderate. She is very progressive. Won the primary and running um, a great grassroots campaign. In Omaha, and according to Nate Silver, it's lean Democratic. I think Cook still has lean Republican. But this is a race in play. And I got to tell you, when I go to a district and they set up a day for you, her campaign set up one of the most productive days. We had a really, really positive day there. She's running an aggressive campaign with all this local uh, interest and flavor. And, you know, if we elect progressives in Omaha, it's going to be hard for some of the people because we're going to have more blue dogs, right, that come in because we're going to have more members coming in the caucus. They're going to claim they're the reason they won, but not when you elect progressives in Omaha, Nebraska, right? So I think that's yeah. another race. Kara Eastman, you know, people should look into uh, just as a couple in the upper Midwest. Right. Um, I saw yesterday a number that uh, – so the, this is the – not the progressive caucus here, but still relates. Mm-hmm. Um, the DCCC reported yesterday that, um, thanks particularly to Nancy Pelosi's efforts – you've got to give her credit for it – that they've raised in the last six months – million for House races. The Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, $5.8 million. Yeah. Now, that's a reflection (sighs) of the times, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I even want to take it a step. $10 million more than the Republicans have raised. Let me take the thank you one step back even to Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders taught us all that you can run campaigns on low dollar donations by saying something that people care about. And that's what's happening right now at the DCCC. If you look at where the money is coming in, it is coming in from small donations from people across the country who want the Democrats to take control. So, um, again, I want people to know when they write a 10 or 20 dollar, you know, online contribution, that's exactly the reason we raised that money and why we're helping so many candidates. So um, I think that's tremendously significant. And for me, someone who has always been part of the, you know, let's get money out of politics uh, crowd in Washington this is what shows us those small dollars matter. It's not the big contributions from corporations and from, you know, very, very well-heeled folks. It's uh, those small dollar donations that drive it. Uh, Bernie, of course, has had other impacts as well, but one of the most notable, in addition to, you're right, more and more candidates are saying, hey, Bernie raised $237 million with no PAC money and no corporate money. I can do it too, right? Exactly. Uh, it's just maybe you need more checks, but but you get more people involved that yeah. way too. Yeah. Uh, the other the other area where I I am almost amused by how today what was considered to be totally um, um, impossible and ridiculous to even talk about two years ago, just two years ago, mm-hmm. Medicare for all. Now everybody's talking about. You see it. Reuters. That poll from about three or four weeks ago, 70% of the people in the country in their poll support Medicare for all. 
So and everybody's running on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, so so I think what what this is showing though is that because the grassroots asked for it. You know, I printed up new bumper stickers for my campaign this year, and I have two different slogans. One is the Paul Wellstone, "We all do better when we all do better," which I think is still the simplest way of explaining a democratic economic it's great. Uh, yeah. policy. The other is if the people lead, eventually pretty, pretty, the leaders pretty will follow. Straightforward. Isn't it? it is. It's a perfect. So it's so Paul yeah. Wellstone. Right. But the other one is if the people lead, eventually the leaders will follow. And that's what we're seeing is people got out there on Medicare for all saying, look, I'm tired of, of all the problems around healthcare. I'm afraid I'm going to lose pre-existing conditions. Once again, look, Canada is not a third world nation. Europe is not in disarray and shambles economically because their people have access uh, to healthcare. Every single person has a right. And I, I think that's where real people are at. And, you know, I do town halls in my district. I did, as you know, five down in yeah. Paul Ryan's district. Uh, I go around well, the country now. he doesn't now. do his own. Exactly. You have to go there. And... <laughs> it's over a thousand days. But he's soon. I, I think the new thing we should start a pool for, Bill, is when the first sales sign goes up in the yard in Janesville, Wisconsin, because Paul is not moving back to Wisconsin. I think he is going to become uh, one of the higher-up swamp creatures uh, in this area. You really think he's oh. going to be a Washington lobbyist? Oh, so. I think he's going to be a rainmaker for a law firm, Re- oh. or a lobbying firm. I mean, you yeah. know, he's the big name, right? And he, they can send him in when they need to, but he'll make yeah. a, you know, 10, 20 times his salary right now. And But I don't see him... Not coming back to Janesville. No, you know, I'm just guessing. <laughs> I mean, he didn't really want to do it when he was a member anyway. It's probably been a thousand days since he's had a town hall. But um, but there is a lot uh, to what you just said. I mean, that, that the grassroots are having such a big impact right now, whether it be those small uh, dollar contributions or uh, on issues like Medicare for all. And uh, to me, that's only good, right? Because that's everything the Progressive Caucus stands for. Right. Um, so what does your gut tells you uh, without being overconfident about Democratic chances of taking back the House? Do you, do you think it's going to happen? You know, I, I just keep looking at all the polls. And, you know, when I was in Omaha and we're competitive and I was in Des Moines and we're competitive and you look across the country in a lot of places that you wouldn't traditionally think would be competitive. We've got a lot of races. I, I'm probably going to be wrong on this number, but it's over 80. So I'm not going to say the exact number. Races that are red to blue. They're the category that we say are the best chance to pick up seats. We need 23. So if you pick up one out of every four approximately races, uh, you are in a position to take the majority. So in the House, and then I think the Senate just depends on how big the wave is. You know, you got people like Beto O'Rourke, who's a great classmate of mine, who's really electrifying people right now by just being real and not Ted Cruz. Um, it's having an impact, right? And Arizona, you know, look at some of these other states. We'll pick up. That's also a possibility. And ten governorships can flip, including Scott yeah. Walker. Mm-hmm. Scott Walker well, is going to go down, I think. Yeah. Do, do you really? Yeah. Yeah. You good. know, here, here's oh, the most tr- true from your sign. lips to God's ears. The most true sign, Bill, was um, one day a couple of weeks ago, his lieutenant governor candidate uh, Mandela Barnes, who's a great former state legislator, worked for six the progressive group that worked with state legislators, and he made a comment about something about taking a knee, and right away they thought, ah, a dog whistle, we can grab it. 14 tweets in a 24-hour period Scott Walker had. He's not used to being behind, so he doesn't know how to respond. Even the president stops at about three on a subject today. <laughs> and so he's starting to make Donald Trump look oh, competent. No, and it's just showing the panic that Scott Walker has. So we have a great shot of uh, defeating him in Wisconsin. And there's like nine other governors, too, that we could pick up yeah. from Nevada to Florida and a whole bunch of other places. Boy, his star has really fallen, hasn't it, Scott yeah. Walker? Well, I mean, you know, his whole his whole star was based on he survived a recall when he broke unions. And, you know, he should be 
Mr. May in the conservative of the month club, you know, but he's not a, a mainstream politician or elected official. He doesn't care about his actual constituents. He cares about that base. It and, was not that long ago. He was considered to oh, be sort of the future a, of yeah. the Republican oh, yeah. Party. The rise, yeah. yeah. No, the, the, the rock star, the right, or, or certainly the rising star. Yeah, everybody's talking about him. Right. And then, and remember he was I think I think he was the first major candidate to drop out of yeah. the yep. uh Republican primary for president in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. I mean he did not last long at all. No. Uh how about Tammy Baldwin, Senate race in Wisconsin? She's looking good. Um, you know, one Tammy is you know, an extraordinary senator. Uh, everyone likes her. It's impossible not to like her. No, she gets great. around the state, she great. does good things, gets things done for the state. Her opponent, Leah Vukmir, is a state senator I used to serve with in the state legislature, who used to be the head of the ALEC subcommittee, the American Legislative Exchange Council oh. subcommittee on healthcare. And I remember in a room once when she was chairing it and I walked in and there's 50 people and she's telling people not to take federal money because it'll just encourage them. So she's oh. telling people, don't take money for your states to help your constituents. So she's so extreme and uh, it's running a rather lackluster campaign. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping that uh, you know we keep the momentum. Tammy comes through, Scott Walker, and we also have a great attorney general candidate, Josh Call. Uh, we have attorney general who's one of these cookie cutter Republicans, not so competent, but you know does all the red meat sort of stuff Republicans like. He was behind for four years, finally got caught up on testing rape kits because it wasn't a priority to him, uh, and now he's trying to run as if it's a positive because he caught up in doing his job. After being after. late for four years. And Josh Call is the son of the former Attorney General Peg Lautenschlager, who was a great Democratic Attorney General in Wisconsin. So I think, yeah, that's another race that people are watching real closely. Right. Um, turnout. Um, so key. Uh, and I saw somebody the other day who said, well, there are only three things that really count in, in any campaign. Turnout, turnout, and turnout. Yep. <laughs> uh, but we're seeing signs of uh, increasing turnout, pardon me, across the board. Yeah. Right? I just I mean, saw, as you move around to these races, I think Chuck Todd had a statistic on this weekend where he talked about the increased turnout in the primaries was significantly up from four years ago. But on the Republican side, it was up like 20 something percent on the Democratic side. It was like up 87 percent. So yeah, you're yeah. definitely seeing the interest is there. We had that in those two special elections in Wisconsin and state Senate races. So we're just trying to make sure that uh, everyone gets out because there is um yeah, we, our base is energized. Their base is still not sure. You know, um, I know someone uh, very close to my family who uh, made a you know is an anti-choice voter, but hates the fact that we're separating kids from parents at the border. So they're not so sure where they are right now. And then we have another phenomena that we saw in in Wisconsin and across the country are suburban voters, often women, but people who aren't traditionally Democrats or Republicans who are just being. This is my way of paraphrasing it: being tired of. Uh, being forced into awkward conversations with their kids about porn stars and mm. assholes and very fine Nazis and Klansmen. It's just not what they expect of a leader and of a political party. And the fact that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell lay down at the side of Paul Ryan or at the side of uh, Donald Trump and occasionally roll over and get their bellies rubbed, it's just not what people want anymore. So I think that's another phenomenon. Right. Uh, I know, but the the numbers because I, I used that the same numbers in a speech uh, in San Antonio on Monday. In thirty one states where there were Democratic primaries yeah. this year, the turnout was up eighty four percent over four years ago. Okay, eighty four. I thought it was yeah, yeah, eighty four percent. Amazing. Yeah. And on the Republican side, turnout was up also twenty four percent. Yeah. So 
I mean, but turn out overall, there's a yeah. lot of excitement, but the Demo- particularly on the Democratic side. So I was on Congressman um, uh, CBS show uh, last week, and the anchor actually asked me, she said, now, um, do you believe, first of all, what do you think about, uh, what, what is your comment about the socialist wing of the Democratic Party, and do they risk taking the party too far to the left? So, you know, you must hear that all the time. My answer, first of all, I just started by saying, let me just say, there is no socialist right. wing to the Democratic Party, okay? I think you're talking about the, you mean the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, of yeah. which I said, I'm part of, yeah. right? But this whole thing, the, the media, that anybody who is to the left of, I don't know, Marco Rubio, right? They call him a, a socialist. socialist yeah. No, that's the new interm, you know, they're using. However, I don't think it's having a lot of impact. If you actually look at um, when they ask, uh, you know, um, millennials, um, you know, or, or, or actually, I mean, sorry. The, yeah, it makes sense. It's millennials, the younger yeah. um, folks about where they're at. I mean, capitalism is not seen as an especially positive thing right now because they see of the abuses, right, right now that we have with, you know, big corporations, big banks, and and special interest influence. That's the real issue. It's not along a, I think, a socialist, non-socialist spectrum. It's along a, when Bernie Sanders said uh, the system was rigged, when Donald Trump said drain the swamp. Those were really parallel messages in many ways, Total. right? And people are tired of seeing the undue influence of special interests. So um, I think that's really where the debate's at. And I try to bring it back to that because the Progressive Caucus did a poll about five or six months ago in 30 competitive congressional districts. And what we saw was we tested the progressive surge voter, people who are progressives but don't vote in off cycle, and then just the, the swing voter in the, those 30 districts. They agree on all of the issues. The intensity could be slightly different, but we asked Medicare for all four different ways, and I think the lowest it came up was 62%. So again, I, one of my biggest things I keep telling the caucus, because my, one of my fears is we'll have a few extra blue dogs and a few new, new Dems, and they're gonna claim they won because they came in when we're gonna have all these new progressives. I wanna go back out and poll and maybe focus group again and show them that really this is what the average person thinks. We don't need to distort our thoughts because there's so many special interests in this town. But the reality is uh, Medicare for All is doing extremely well because people actually understand it and want it. And Medicare is hard. Is, I mean, I, I, people throw the socialism word around. I'm, I'm not even sure they even know what socialism is. No, they don't. No. I mean, I don't know anybody, any, anybody who's out there advocating Public, the public, the government taking over the banks or taking over the oil companies, <laughs> right, 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 or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but even if you look at Medicare, how long has Medicare been around? 60-some yeah. <laughs> years right now? I mean, it's not, to say Medicare for all is not socialist. No, I know. It's, but again, the moneyed interests are really good at putting the subterfuge out there to try to stop all this. That's why- well, I, As they called it, socialized medicine at one yeah, time, of course, yeah. back in Harry Truman's day even. Well, that's yeah. why I just think that the untold story of what may happen in November is a whole lot of people coming here who aren't taking corporate money, and that's going to change how this town operates. I mean, you know how you know how many people spend so much time every single day they're here raising money just to be here. And, and I always think, if I compare this to Sesame Street, where one of these things doesn't belong with the others, the skills <laughs> of a congressman, the thing that doesn't belong is the ability to beg 
on the phone while wearing a suit or a, a dress mm. and uh, begging for money, which is what we often spend too much time doing. And because of that, the special interests have an undue amount of influence versus your constituents. And if we can reverse that around, and it may very likely, you bring in that many new people who think that way, you're going to see a lot of other changes around here. So um, I, I just see a lot of good coming out of November if people really just get out and get motivated and not just vote, but you know, can they put a few hours in to help candidates in their area? Uh, it's not your uh, job, but what do you think of how the Senate is handling the, Mark, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination? Well, I mean, it, you know, watching the fact that they're going to force a vote the next day, no matter what, they've already told you what they think about the testimony and the fact that they have 11, you know, older white gentlemen that are, should be there to ask the questions and that doesn't look good. So now they're going to bring someone else in to do it. and They're changing how they operate to not look like they're as out of touch as they are. Again, just shows how bad this is going to be. I think it's going to blow up. I think up, they're though. trying to save themselves from R and Hatch because R and Hatch could destroy Sakes everything. some crazy, crazy things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, You know he would. Well, and I think there's still potential to have oh, yeah. that happen. Oh. So I think, you know, the, the circus is in town on Thursday, and then there's also another wing of the circus over going to be at the White House because, um, you know, oh, with- Rosenstein going over there, I think yeah. that's going to be uh, another potential circus, which uh, many groups across the country are ready for. We've all long said, if you fire Mueller or Rosenstein, uh, you activate hundreds of thousands, if not, I think it's actually millions of people by now they have uh, to rallies across the country because we know what this is all about. This is to stop the investigation that's been going obviously very clearly with, you know, it, what at 30 to 40 indictments mm-hmm. already. Right. Um, and to say that nothing is happening or this is a, a you know bad uh, investigation. That's what this is all about. This is Donald Trump saving his behind and uh, people are ready to activate if that happens. Do you believe that he will fire Rosenstein? You know, I don't know. I, I think part of it, he may wait till after the midterms because as crazy as Donald Trump is, he probably has had a lot of people, including Paul Ryan, um, you know, talking to him about why this would not be good. And I think what he's doing is doing a public way to show that he's not going to do it because that's how Donald Trump would operate. But they've obviously had some very serious conversations. I mean, obviously, Kelly was out there on Monday and, and all the rest. So, uh, I tend to agree with you. Like He probably will wait, but also at the well. same time, as you just said, he's got people telling him, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, Sean you shouldn't Hannity. do this, which means he will almost certainly oh, do yeah, it. That's true, right. <laughs> you know? Although his chief of staff, Sean Hannity, has a lot of influence. <laughs> that's so. right, that's yeah. right. Uh, but... Uh, but I think you may be right. If he's going to do it, to wait until after the midterms and then fire Rosenstein and uh, Mueller at the same time. So if that happens, if he fires either, particularly if he fires Rosenstein, let's focus on that. What happens to the Mueller investigation? Is it over? Well, that's the thing. Is he's doing it to stop the investigation, Absolutely. right? And, and, Absolutely. and so that's why everyone will activate, will be ready. And don't forget, if he does it after the election, if we take the majority, that's the lame duck period. I assume it's going to be the most wild lame duck period uh, in in most people's uh, memories, because uh, they'll be their last chance to have the House, the Senate, and the President, and they will try to do a lot of bad things during that period. So we have yeah. to have people uh, not just voting, but being ready to be energized during that period uh, after the election. Is it a given that if Republicans take, if, if Democrats, sorry, take back control, if we take back control of the House, uh, that um, there will be immediate uh, impeachment hearings? 
I think you'll have a lot of different hearings on a lot of different issues that no one's been looking at. I mean, the emoluments clause is a classic, right? Uh, to me, there's multiple pretty obvious uh, potential violations of the emoluments clause. You're going to have to start the hearings on that. There's a lot of different things like that that'll happen. So, a lot of oversight hearings. Yeah. So I think that's probably the, the first trigger that'll happen because, um, you know, the Republicans have been unwilling to do their job as a co-equal separate branch of government. And we've got to start a lot of that work. Right. But no rush to impeachment, do you believe? Or I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, some people, obviously. I, I think I, the line we've heard the most by people, and I think it's been pretty reasonable, is let's see what the Mueller investigation does. If he tries to get rid of the Mueller investigation, clearly then we have to do everything we can to, to try to pick up the pieces. But um, I assume that there, there's been a lot of good information already coming out of the Mueller investigation. 